Let's pray. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you purchased your bride with your blood and that you love her and you are tender towards her. You wash her so that we as a church might be presented to you holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So that all that is going on here on Sunday mornings and all that is going on throughout the week in flocks and in fellowships, at campus ministries and at retreats. Lord, your grand desire is for our sanctification, for our transformation into the likeness, into the beauty of Jesus Christ so that we're presentable to your Son as a pleasing, spotless bride. And Lord, we confess to you that it is at times with agony that we're washed. It is at times, Lord, like children unwilling to go to the bath, that we are sanctified. And yet, Lord, we ask that not our will, but your will would be done in our church, in our midst, that you would cleanse us, that you would purify us, that you would build us up to the body of Christ, to the fullness of the stature that belongs to the fullness of Christ. And so, Lord, with many pleas, we present our request to you this morning. We pray for our coming retreat next week. And we ask that you would pour your spirit out upon us as the word of God is preached, that the divine surgeon would take up that scalpel and do his work in our hearts and in our minds. That, Lord, we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds as the word of God is preached, as we assimilate its truths into our hearts and apply it through our lives. We pray for Lou as he's preparing this week with his many burdens of counseling and shepherding and preparing sermons, that you would give him grace, and that he would come in joy, that he would come in gladness, that he would come in strength, that he might be poured out for our benefit, for your glory, that you would encourage him as well through our congregation, through our body, that he himself would be built up, that his wife would be encouraged, that her heart would be refreshed and their children as well would be strengthened and edified as they see our church loving you as they love each other and as they love the Priolos. And Lord, we also lift up before you this morning our brother Joshua and his family and we give you much, much thanks for bringing him to us. And We thank you for the privilege it has been to be ministered to by him and likewise to minister to him. We thank you, O Lord, that you have allowed him to be faithful to what you have called him to do. You have given him uh, the strength to be faithful. And yet, Lord, we know that there is, as was explained this morning, uh, a greater need even beyond faithfulness. And so, Lord, we pray as he wrestles with the pangs of his heart. And, Lord, as we wrestle, Lord, with what your will is, that you would give all of us grace. Lord, give Joshua grace this week as he rests, and I pray the Lord he would see clearly your will and that he would pursue that. I pray, God, you would give us uh, grace as well to be patient and to be prayerful. And so, Lord, now we also turn to your word this morning and pray again that you would lavish your grace upon us, that, Lord, the cup would be poured out the bowl and pitcher would be poured out and that, Lord, the water would be splashed upon us, cleansing our hearts, cleansing our minds, instructing us, teaching us, 
in building us up for your glory and for your joy, for our good. Oh, Lord, thank you again for this time. And in your name we pray. Amen. Well, at the end of the year, uh, each member at CBC receives an official statement from Cornerstone Bible Church. And if you give by check, you know, somehow it's tracking that, tracking your giving. And it gives that paper back to you, having recorded your giving so that you can do like tax deduction, tax write-off. And it it always says, intangible religious benefits. So what you have, you give money and what you get in return is what the IRS calls intangible religious benefits. So if you're like me, you look at that and you're like, what are, what are intangible religious benefits? What does that, what does that mean? Okay, so the IRS, it may not actually truly believe that you and I are receiving intangible religious benefits. But we have the freedom to minister, we have the freedom to preach the word, we have the freedom to gather as a church, and we have the freedom to uh, tax write-off. So the IRS sends us this piece of paper, intangible religious benefits. But we understand that though these benefits in the church, though these benefits that were given through the word of God, through fellowship, though they're intangible, and though they are maybe somewhat ethereal, they're not insubstantial. They are not made up. They are not pretend. But they're, they're real. There's substance in them. They're objective realities. They're true benefits. And the reality is also that what we give is nothing compared to what we get. The money that we give to Christ is nothing in comparison to the intangible religious benefits that we receive through the gospel, through the word of God. The scriptures relate to us the intangible religious benefits given to us through the gospel. Things like redemption, forgiveness of sins, justification, regeneration, reconciliation, the ability to spiritually approach the throne of grace and to pray and to receive grace and mercy in time of need. And you can't see those things, which is why they're quote-unquote intangible. We'd be in trouble if uh, after the service this morning, IRS came to James, came to myself and said, will you please show me some reconciliation? Will you please show me justification? Will you please show me the forgiveness of sins? We'd say, I can't show it to you. How do we know it's not just ethereal and that it's not simply intangible, but that it's real? As we see the power of the gospel in the lives of believers. That's how we know it at this time that it's real. We can't see reconciliation now. It is intangible. But I would argue that someday you're going to see great, even beyond intangible, but tangible benefits of the gospel. You're going to see with your own eyes reconciliation. Someday you and I are going to stand before God We're going to stand at the judgment seat and instead of crying out for the rocks to fall upon us and instead of being melted in the fury of holiness, Jude says we're going to stand before God holy and blameless with great, with great joy. We're going to stand before God and we're going to see him face to face and we'll praise him with shouts of joy and the government will then 
Stop sending you pieces of paper that say intangible religious benefits because you're going to see Christ and you're going to touch Him and you're going to see His pierced hands and His pierced feet and His pierced side and you're going to say, that is not intangible. But I can see it and I can feel it. Likewise, this morning, we come to receive intangible religious benefits From the fellowship with the saints, we receive prayer from each other, encouragement from each other, admonishment, instruction, wisdom, counsel. There's also some of those actual tangible benefits that we receive, like snacks in between services and uh, meals on wheels, some of my favorite tangible benefits. The Scriptures call us to this seemingly intangible, albeit very real pursuit of the unseen. Christ says, take my yoke upon you, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Cast your cares upon Him. Long for the pure milk of the Word. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Set your mind on the things above. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And there's this agenda in the Scriptures where we are called to look and search and long for not the things which are seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are unseen are eternal. And so this morning, I want to focus our time on the intangible aspect of the mind. The intangible aspect of the mind. So I ask you to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we've had a few sermons here. James preached a sermon from Romans chapter 12. One or two, a few weeks ago, he did his part one. Looked on the website. There's no part two yet, so I'll make up part two. Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul writes this. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And it's this phrase, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that we want to focus on this morning. And I want to begin by asking, what is the mind? What is the mind? It is unseen. It is in some ways indescribable. There is something intangible about the mind, but at the same time very concrete and objective. The mind is not a fantasy. It is not mere psychological vocabulary. It is real, true aspect of man and woman. The mind, along with the soul and heart, is the most important of what we might call the spiritual organs. The spiritual organs. An organ is a group of tissues that perform a specific function for the body. For, the, for example, the heart is an organ. Right? The liver and the brain are organs. Even uh, the ears, eyes, and the scalp and the nose are considered organs. Now, some of these organs are, are obviously more important than others. Right? You can live without a nose. It's not pretty, but you can do it. You can live without a tongue. But there are some bodily organs that are so important and so necessary to your human functioning, to your living, they're called vital organs. 
The human brain, it is a vital organ. The human heart is a vital organ. The proper functioning of the body's organs are crucial to health and life. My favorite football player uh, growing up was Walter Payton. Walter was a manly man. He was a top physical specimen. He pushed himself and worked himself into top physical shape. Peyton was a fourth-round draft pick for the Chicago Bears. He predicted that he would last five years as an NFL running back. Instead, he lasted 13. Out of 13 years as an NFL football running back, he missed one single game, and that was his, his very first season. His rookie season, he missed one game. After that, he played 12 consecutive years without missing one single game. That's 186 games in the position which is the most brutal in the NFL. Peyton broke the NFL rushing record in 84, and he held on to that record for 18 years with an all-time career 16,726 rushing yards. In one game, he ran for 275 yards, breaking the single-game rushing record, all while battling the flu. During the off-season, Peyton would train like a madman, sprinting up and down a 45-degree, 90-foot hill, sometimes 20 times in a row. His, his teammates would come out with him, and they would try to train with him, and no single teammate could last his endurance. He was unstoppable as a running back. On February 2nd, 1999, Walter Payton appeared to the media frail and skinny and announced that he was suffering from primary sclerosis cholangitis, a rare disease in which the ducts that drain bile from the liver become inflamed and blocked. While undergoing treatment for his liver, it was discovered that he had bile duct cancer. He was placed on the waiting list to receive a liver transplant and was even given the opportunity to move up to a much higher position on the list and increase his chances of a transplant. He declined the offer, stating that it would be unfair for him to live at the expense of someone else's death. Walter Payton died on November 1st, 1999, of liver disease and complications, at 45 years old. Walter Payton knew how important vital organs were. He knew that even a 5'10", 200-pound man of solid muscle did not stand a chance if something went wrong with his vital organs. And likewise this morning, the Scriptures tell us that our spiritual organs are of utmost importance. As a physical organ is pertinent to the body's function, spiritual organs are pertinent to the life of a believer. The Scriptures have many names for these important spiritual organs. The heart the mind, the conscience, and the soul. And those seemingly intangible are absolutely real. It is with this understanding that the Scriptures shepherd us this morning. We are called to handle the spiritual organ of our mind with utmost concern and with utmost care. Look at verse 2. The command, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good, that which is acceptable, that which is perfect. 
The word conformed is a present passive imperative. Passive voice means that the action is being done upon the subject. The scripture's command here is thus a, a defensive posture. It is to keep one's self unstained, if you will. To keep oneself unstained by the world. But Paul makes it more clear in what he means when he gives us the positive side of the command. And that is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The word transformed is likewise present passive imperative. It means to continuously allow this action to be done to you. And so we see from the, the positive command that Paul's concern in do not be conformed has to do with the, with the spiritual organ of the mind. Paul's concern is with the Christian mind. So what we need to understand this morning, we must understand that the Christian must first and foremost be a thinker. He must first and foremost be a thinker. It is the spiritual organ, the mind, that is of utmost importance to God. God calls mankind to love Him with all His intangible, all but vital spiritual organs. Our minds, hearts, souls are to be His. This is what the gospel is primarily concerned with. First, the internal, and then the external. And it is this case why the verb is passive. It is an action upon our internal spiritual organs which must first be initiated by God before we ourselves can enact any sort of change upon ourselves. God's work upon our vital spiritual organs must be performed first before any transformation in our lives will ever take place. This is the gospel. The gospel performs its work on the dead and hardened hearts and minds of sinners, giving them life, opening their minds, opening their hearts to not just hear the gospel, but to believe the gospel, to love the gospel, to accept the gospel, to absorb the gospel, to be regenerated by the gospel, to be made alive by the gospel, and then, having been made alive by God, to then love God. It is God who does this miraculous spiritual work upon our hearts and minds, And having done so, we are able now to function with those spiritual organs, to love God with heart and soul and mind. But I want to bring your attention to the term world in verse 2. The term world here is not the term cosmos, but rather it's, it's the Greek term ion, which means age. Paul is referring to the world's thinking, the world's order, the world's view. The Latin equivalent of ion is saculum, from where we get our word secular. Secular. In other words, Paul is declaring, do not be secular in your thinking. Do not be conformed to a worldview that is without God. To be conformed to this world means to submit your mind to the system of the secular. It means to go back to that very thinking from which you have been saved from. It amounts to going back to the system of the world and all of its darkness and godlessness and allowing it to formulate your mind and thinking. And Paul says, 
do not do this. Do not do this. Paul's command is to resist secular thinking, and it's a call to battle. The greatest weapon of the Christian is his mind. What he truly believes about God, himself, and the world will keep him from the parasites of the world. It will keep him from succumbing to the temptations of the flesh and of false doctrine, and it will bring him safely to glory. The mind of the Christian must be hostile to the world because the world is hostile to the mind of the Christian. The mind of the church must be that of war. This is why the Puritans called it the church militant on earth. Until the church is taken out of the world, until the new heavens and new earth are complete, and Jesus is physically and presently ruling over all, we are nonconformists. We are outsiders. We are one who, who are waging not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of wickedness. We wage not against those who, who want to steal our kidneys, who want to steal our, our gallbladder, who want to steal our brains, but we're waging against, against those who, if they could, would steal our soul, would steal our heart, and would steal our mind. The world wants our minds. It wants us to think our thoughts after them rather than to think our thoughts after God. And yet Paul says we must be, therefore, we must be protective of our minds for the onslaught against us is everywhere. Now, we can get into a lot of application. We can get into a lot of do not do this and do not do that. My goal this morning is not to go uh, fundamentalist on us, as if stop going to the mall, stop watching movies, is the simple answer to the transformation of the mind. I'm not vying that you boycott the radio, but I am vying that the church militant must wage war against a cloaked enemy. The Bible says even Satan appears as an angel of light. He does not come on a scaled dragon with flame-tipped spear, with his skull a ball of flames and a horrendous shriek. He comes silently. He comes dressed in beauty. He comes as a talking serpent, somehow mesmerizing in his speech, dizzying with crafted words. He has seduced the world with his slithering tongue, yet he is not satisfied. He craves the souls of the men and women of the church. He has a palate for the souls of saints. He cannot read your mind, but he knows your sinful habits. He knows your weaknesses. He knows that though the Christian man and woman is no longer a slave to sin, that we are all like sheep, easily led astray from the flock. When we grew up, me meaning like 30, maybe 30 and above, when we grew up, we were told that rock and roll music was of the devil. And that if you played Motley Crue backwards, you would hear, worship Satan in the lyrics, right? But if you, if you listen to today's music, we would argue you don't need to listen to it backwards to hear it say that. Right? It, just, it just says that. It screams out such things with all of its lyrics and with all of its desires. I, I can't go to L.A. Fitness. I can't go to L.A. Fitness without hearing pornographic songs. Have you listened to the songs that they're, they're playing on the radio? It's pornography in words. The world's ways speak in poetic terms. Never does the devil say directly, follow me. But he speaks poetically. He speaks seductively. And he lures men and women, even Christians in, unbeknownst to them, 
men and women, the battle for your minds. It's not like the American Revolutionary War. It's not like the American and British armies lined up face to face. I mean, we look at that. That is the most absurd way to do a war. They line up all these men, all with guns loaded, bayonets lowered. They start shooting and they just charge at one another. That's not how Satan attacks us. Satan's attack upon the human mind, upon the believer's mind, it's guerrilla warfare. It's ambush. It's roadside bombs. It's the unsuspecting route upon the human heart and the Christian soul that Satan comes at. Now, the Scriptures are not alone in speaking of the mind. The believer alone is is not simply the one who has studied the mind and concerned with the mind. This is what psychology is. The word psychology comes from the words suke, soul, and, and logos, which is the word, the study of. Hence, psychology means the study of the soul or, or the study of the mind. Psychology, the word was first coined by Martin Luther's longtime friend and fellow reformer, Melanchthon, back in the mid-1500s. In 1895, the word psychology began to be used in a scientific sense. To merely talk about psychology right now would be about equivalent of talking about religion. There's all kinds of different psychologies. Analytical, behavioral, evolutionary, the list goes on and on. But the bottom line of all these leads back to the behavior. It leads back to that men have come up with a so-called system, a so-called study, a so-called analysis, where they have diagnosed the human mind and its functioning and its purposes they have come to a way to assess its, its disintegration and its difficulties, and they have come up with sort of means and ways to fix the human mind and to help the human mind. This leads us to two major studies of the mind, the two systems of thought, the two psychologies, if you will, that are unfolded to us in Romans. The first is what we have been looking at. Do not be conformed to the the world, the world's thinking, the world's psychology. The world's psychology has determined that man is an animal, a complex organism evolved from our primate friends. Maybe somewhat stereotypical, but pretty close. The psychology of the world has given us all sorts of nifty diagnoses like mental disease, mental disorder, ADD, anxiety disorder, codependency, bipolar disorder. They have come up with all sorts of ways to change him, like rehabilitation, behavior modification, frontal lobotomy, lithium, psychotropic drugs. Depressed, maybe you have a chemical imbalance or some brain fungus. Angry, perhaps you should practice venting. And much more thorough discussion could be had. But the main focus of psychology is that their greatest concern is for man and his well-being. And they surmise that they can achieve that. If the word sin is used, it is not used as an offense before a holy God, but rather as an offense against mankind and against oneself. Ironically, the rise of modern psychology screams with clarity that mankind knows he is messed up and in need of help. People are spending millions of dollars to get help for their minds and hearts. They're going to PhDs who claim to be physicians of the soul and can help them get better. 
Don't call it sin, they say. That's the root of your problem. Well, we know this kind of approach, and we've heard enough about this from our own pulpit, the dangers of psychology. Some of us grew up in that that church, that kind of church which preached the syncretism of both the Word and psychology. We heard growing up that the Word is good for, for faith and practice, but psychology has answers to problems that Paul and Jesus never dreamed of. Therefore, the, the counselor today, today's pastor, he needs the Bible, yes, but he needs psychology. Pastor Erwin Lutzer writes, Many Bible school graduates think they have to get a doctorate in psychology at a state university so they can become a counselor. They think they have to combine psychological training with their Bible school knowledge for maximum effectiveness. But psychologists and theologians dispute the extent to which psychological studies can can successfully integrate the Bible with the Bible. Lutzer continues, Personally, I am weary about attempts at integration. I find no biblical support to distinguish a spiritual problem from a psychological problem. At root, man's psychological problems, unless they are physical or chemical causes, are spiritual. And where could we find a better analysis of man's needs along with a supernatural remedy than the Scriptures? We heartily agree. Which brings us to the second source of psychology. The psychology of the word. If psychology is the study of the soul, what book is more qualified to unfold to us a true diagnosis of the human mind than the Bible? I would argue this morning it's precisely the phrase, the Bible and psychology, that is wrong. For the Bible is the true and only right psychology. The Bible is the true and only right ability to assess the human mind. And God used the Apostle Paul to give us a stunning look at the psychology of man in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to flip with me for for a little bit to Romans chapter 1. As we unfold the Scripture's psychology of man. I want to read through beginning of verse 18. And just unfold a little bit of this as we go along. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Here is the first diagnosis. The suppression of truth which is an internal exercise of the mind and it leads to external behavioral change which Paul says and calls un, as unrighteousness. Suppression of truth is first and foremost psychological. It is an action beginning in the mind of man. And Paul uses a vivid physical verb to describe what begins as an intangible mental exercise, but that this suppression of truth quickly leads to physical manifestations. He continues in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, eternal power, divine nature, have clearly been seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. 
For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verses 19 through 21 diagnose the greatest psychological blunder of all time. The denial of God and His truth. The innate human knowledge of God's existence and the instinctive reaction to give thanks to God for His manifest power in the world and manifest goodness towards His creatures is suppressed and crushed under the weight of human pride. Verse 21 says that they became futile in their speculations. The word speculations in the Greek is the word dialogismos, right? from where we get our word dialogue. It means reasoning, thoughts, directions. It speaks of the dialogue of a man within himself. It speaks of man's internal reasoning inside his own heart, inside his own mind. His, his reasoning, his dialogue, is that of trying to assess the world around him. And yet Paul says because of his suppression of truth, his, his reasoning, his internal dialogue has become futile. The word futile means empty, vain, to make something void. The human mind created by God was genius, but perverted by man's sin became maddening and destructive. Here is the madness of evolutionary science. This is the madness of evolutionary science. Science says that man has evolved from ooze to fish to monkey to man. Paul tells us that sin has led man from being an upright, high-minded image of God to regressing to the thinking of a baboon. The Word of God says that man's worldly logic is as incomprehensible and illogical as monkey gibberish. That is what the suppression of God's truth has led the human mind to. Illogical, ill-reasoned dialogue in a human heart and in a human mind. Feudal and speculations describe the psychological thought process of a man and its effects. So depraved and futile did they become, their foolish heart was darkened. All I need to say, all I need to say at this point is Smeagol. Smeagol, and you, you get the picture. It's a fitting illustration. Man has not evolved, he has devolved. Like Smeagol, we have gone from reflecting the image of God to reflecting the image of a monster. The man is still there, the image of God is still resident, but his mind, it's deformed and it's depraved. The phrase was darkened, it's it's passive. It was done to the heart as a result of man's suppression of truth and in this direction he became a smeagol. Overwhelmed with lust, bringing him to an irreversible internal mutation of the mind. Verse 22, professing to be wise, became fools, exchanged the glory of God for idols, 24 through 27 unfold what external manifestations this corruption of internal dialogue results in. Human depravity. Human depravity at its highest 
homosexuality, all kinds of degrading sexual sins. Paul's psychoanalysis of the human heart is not Freudian sexual suppression, but the conclusive judgment of God upon rebellious sinners. Look at verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things that are not proper. Depraved mind. Adokimon, the word means unable, spurious. They emptied their minds of God and filled it with a foreign substance. Verse 29 says they're filled with unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. They're slanders, haters of God, disobedient to parents, without understanding. I'm going to stop right there. I want to read a brief blog post, very brief, I read this week from Justin Taylor's Between Two Worlds, which illustrates the utter absurdity of our world's thinking. It reads, The NFL has indefinitely suspended Michael Vick for his grotesque, inhumane actions of dogfighting. In other less reported news, the NFL team Jacksonville Jaguars has donated $30,000 to Planned Parenthood. I think you get the point. Convict a man for killing dogs. Praise football teams that give money to organizations that kill children. And approve it. Applaud it. Commend them for their sacrifice. So that verse 32 says, And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. It's the human mind. This is the workings of man's self-willed suppression of truth and God's righteous allowance of the corruption of the human mind. It is because of this holocaust of the human mind that Paul commands us not to be conformed to this world's thinking. And not one single man or woman in this room is immune to the world's thinking. In fact, if you're a believer, all that means is that you used to be an unbeliever. You used to have this kind of mind. And as a believer... We're still prone to suppress truth. Anybody in here seen, <clears throat> anybody watch that series, the BBC series, Planet Earth? You guys watch any of that? It was on Discovery Channel? All right, nobody watched it. Okay. Anyways, <laughs> I watched some of it. Incredible, incredible footage about God's creation. Of course, it's on the guise of evolution, but it's stunning pictures, stunning stories, stunning documentary, study footage of God's creation. And one part that was incredibly amazing to me was one part about ants. And in this one particular part, it was about ants and this fungus. Some of you guys, maybe you saw this. Okay, The spores of this fungus attach themselves to the external surface of the ant. And and then they germinate. They then enter the ant's body through the trachea. And then this fungus starts to grow inside the ant's body cavity absorbing its soft tissues, but avoiding its vital organs. When the fungus is ready to make more spores, tiny filaments grow into the ant's brain. 
The fungus then produces chemicals which act on the ant's brain and alter its perceptions of pheromones. This causes the ant to climb a plant to its highest place and upon reaching the top with its mandible to tightly clamp around the leaf or stem, thus securing its body firmly to the tree. At this point, the fungus then devours the ant's brain, killing the host. A stalk from the fungus then grows and sprouts forth from the ant's head. Once mature, the the spore-filled pod at the end of the stalk explodes, releasing clusters of capsules into the air. As these capsules are falling to the ground, they also explode, releasing tiny spores over the surrounding area. These spores then infect other ants, completing the life cycle of the fungus while infecting hundreds, if not thousands, of other ants. The spores are so destructive, they can wipe out an entire colony of ants. It's a vivid, vivid illustration of the impact and the goal of sin on the human mind. Sin entering in, devouring the minds of men who clamp down upon their favorite sin until it kills them. Our entire planet has been wiped out by the spores of sin. But unlike ants, we're not innocent victims. And as believers, we should not be unsuspecting to the vials, to the wiles of sin. We must not willfully digest the fungus of sin. The world's only and final answer to be saved from such madness as Paul pronounces in Romans chapter 1 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. If all of us have been infected by a fungus more horrendous than anything an ant has endured, what help is there? Paul says the only answer the only means to transform the corrupted psychology of man is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 1, Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. is that single word, therefore, that Paul uses to sum up the entirety of the gospel in Romans 1-11. through The true physician, the true psychologist, announces the healing of the soul in the cross of Jesus Christ. It is the salvation of our souls. It is the resurrection of our minds, of our ability to see things and to reason the way God has intended us to reason and to see life, to see the world the way God has intended us to see, only capable through the gospel Therefore, Paul says, having received the gospel, I urge you to present your bodies a living sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Our response to the gospel is to live in the power of the gospel. Only having first been impacted and affected by the gospel in our own hearts, in our own minds, can we now live a life that is pleasing to God. And so Paul calls us now as redeemed, forgiven, transformed men and women to respond to God with offerings of thanksgiving. So he says, be transformed 
be transformed. Here is that positive command, the offensive command. Let the word transform you. It speaks of change that is progressive and moving towards a goal. There is to be a transformation, Paul says, of our spiritual organs. The gospel does this, but it does not complete this. The gospel brings us to such a place that we have been made alive. Our spiritual organs are made functional. But sanctification is the process of learning how to use the Christian mind to please God. Sanctification is the process of learning how to think with the mind of Christ rather than to think with the mind of the world. But how is this metamorphosis accomplished? How is this transformation accomplished? Paul says in verse 2, you're you're transformed by the renewing of your mind. This renewal is that of the believer's mind being conformed to that of Christ's mind. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2.16 that we have the mind of Christ. We have the tool, he says. But Paul here says that we must learn how to use it. You have the mind, but now you must learn how to use it. So Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.13, prepare your minds for action. The command here is the Christian must strive to learn to use his mind. The culture that we live in has produced men and women who do not know how to think for themselves. They don't know how to think for themselves. All their thoughts are just opinions of other men. All their reasoning is that of what others have told them to reason. All their political deduction is from that of the nightly news. We let others define our worldview. And even as Christians, don't get me wrong here, but we just read and we just listen, but we don't think for ourselves. We just we want to know what John MacArthur's position is on this so that we can state that as our position. We want to know what, what John Piper's position is on this so that we can just state John Piper's position. But the Christian's call is to use his own mind and to reason in his own capacity for the glory of God. We can quickly confirm this by the fact that the Bible does not tell us exactly what to do in every situation and in every circumstance. The scriptures give us imperatives and prohibitions, but not explicit decisions. Why? Because God's joy is as you and I learn to use our God-given mind to make decisions that are pleasing to Him. God's pleased as you and I learn to make our own personal decisions. I I delight in seeing Lydia grow in making her own decisions. When I say, Lydia, it's time for bed, she runs to the bathroom, opens the drawer, pulls out her toothbrush, says, Daddy, I'm going to do it by myself. She wants to brush her teeth by herself. Now, sometimes she gets toothpaste all over the place. And I tell her, Lydia, you gotta spit it out. You know, we wanna swallow it. But sometimes she forgets. But it, I take joy in watching her learn how to brush her own teeth. It's sanctification. Learning how to brush her teeth. Learning how to put on her own jammies. If Sophie could learn how to put on her own diaper, I would be full of joy. <laughs> but God, He takes joy as the Christian learns how to use His own mind. For God's glory. 
my friend had a cat. And this cat, it wanted to please its master. And this cat, it would hunt mice. And it would bring these mice to its master. It would lay this dead mouse down at its feet. As if, here is my offering. Failing to think with the mind of Christ results in laying dead mice at the feet of God. So we are ever asking, what will please the Lord? What is His good, pleasing, and acceptable will? That is what we are that's what we are counseled here to do in the Scriptures. We are counseled here as believers to ever be thinking with the mind of Christ and ever be asking, what is pleasing to God in this situation? How can I, as an individual believer, as an individual child of God, make the decision that is pleasing in the sight of God? How can I offer up my life as a living sacrifice? The ability to answer that question takes place as you first simply learn to ask that question. And secondly, as you learn to think with the mind of Christ. You must understand that the Christian mind must use its Christian brain. You must see everything and think through everything in a Christian way. When you first got saved, when we first got saved, We were like that blind man who Jesus approached and spit in his eyes and rubbed spittle to his eyes and said, what do you see? He said, I see men walking around like trees. And and that is some sense how we first see when we get saved. We have regenerated hearts. We have the mind of Christ. But we are learning to use that mind. We are learning and growing into our ability and capacity to look at this world with a brand new, utterly unique worldview, and that is with the mind of Christ. So that now as a Christian, every single thing you look at is seen differently. The businessman, he now goes to the office as a Christian and he relates to the single woman in an utterly different manner. The thoughts that go through his head are thoughts that would keep his heart and mind pure as he, a married man, talks to she, a single woman. The the single Christian His thinking is different as he or she approaches a single man or a single woman. Their reasoning, their thinking for a single woman to approach a single man. And she's guarding her heart. She's thinking, how can I dress in a way that is pleasing to God and not stumbling to other men? How can I speak to a man and act before another man that is not flirtatious and seductive, but is pleasing and is edifying? That is what the Christian mind, that is what the call is. It is to think through every circumstance with the mind of Christ. Maturity is the ability to assess what is good and acceptable and pleasing. Maturity is the growing ability to reason and to figure out for yourself what is good and what is acceptable and what is pleasing in the sight of God. It's pretty basic for me not to expect Lydia to not fully understand that she needs to remember to look both ways before crossing the street. I have to help her still. I have to instruct her. Our our little instruction right now, the last couple weeks, has been teaching her how to eat. She sits at the table. She's leaning back here. She's got this bowl of soup, and she's digging digging out, and she's bringing it way back here. And by the time the spoon gets there, there's nothing on it. Right? It's spilled all over. I got one of those tray bibs, so you pick up the bib and pour it into her mouth. She's pouring all that stuff all over the place. So I'm teaching her, Lydia, Lydia, lean and bite. Lean and bite. 
So she said to me now, Daddy, lean and bite. She's leaning and biting. You know what? If Lydia's 18 and I still have to tell her to lean and bite, something's wrong. If she's 18 and I still got to remind her, look both ways before you cross the street, something's wrong. But I trust that as she matures, she'll lean and bite. She'll look both ways. And a mature saint is one who's looking both ways. The mature saint is one who's striving to lean and bite. He forgets sometimes. He spills soup on himself. But he's striving to lean and bite. He's striving to look both ways. He's striving to be one who is constantly thinking with the mind of Christ. finally this morning, we must be most mindful that this call for transformation and renewal is not first and foremost about us. But this call for transformed mind is first and foremost for God. Oren Lutzer said, the greatest flaw of all in secularism and psychology is that it puts man's needs as the greatest focus rather than God. The greatest blunder of all is that the world focuses on fixing itself for its own betterment rather than presenting holy people to God for His glory. The world's agenda is to fix itself for its own self. God's agenda is to bring all things together in Christ until every knee bows down before Him. And He has chosen to do this not by fixing our problems, but by saving our souls and transforming our minds. Romans 12, verse 2, is urging us to attend to the delicate organ of the mind, to give constant attention to it, to what it thinks, to what it feeds on, to what it stores up, and to exercise our use of the mind that Christ has given us. So I ask you this morning, what are you subjecting your mind to? What are you submitting your mind to? Are you subjecting your mind to books, magazines, blogs, movies, images, and music that contains the fungus of the world? Are you diligently subjecting your mind to books, blogs, audio, and people who will help your mind be transformed into Christ-likeness and who will help you learn how to think with the mind of Christ? This text begs you and I to evaluate what we subject our minds to. There's not to be a mixing. There's not to be some thinking with the mind of Christ and some thinking with the mind of the world. But we are to be attentive to the vital organ of the mind. If you were to carry your liver around with you, how careful, how delicate you would be. How attentive you would be to make sure that you didn't set your liver down in a pile of dirt. That you didn't leave your liver behind. If our livers were external, you would care for it. You would be delicate with it. But what about your mind? Are you careful with the mind that God has given you? Failure to care for this vital spiritual organ will result in an inability to know what is pleasing to God. It will result in the laying down of dead mice at the feet of God and thinking that He is pleased. So guard your minds, shepherd your minds, defend your minds, and exercise them in the pursuit of what is pleasing and acceptable and good in the sight of God. Let's pray.
Father, as we read Romans 1 and see the absolute corruption of the human mind, and then look out upon this congregation this morning and to see saints who are living sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, the only pronouncement is that the gospel is powerful. The gospel is glorious. The gospel is merciful. And the gospel is incredibly psychological, incredible, incredible in its transformatory powers upon the darkened, corrupted human mind. And Lord, you have renewed our minds. You have enabled what we had disabled. You have brought us to such a state where we can now clearly assess the world around us and say everything is created by God. And God is good to lost sinners. Oh Lord, we ask you now to help us be renewed. Help us to seek to be transformed in our minds. Help us to seek after that which is good. Not assessing what we want to determine as good for our own lust and for our own desire. But thrusting off those things which are selfish in ambition to pick up those things and to perform those duties and to think those thoughts which we can then say, I lay this, I bring my life and all of my thoughts and all of my reasoning and all of my actions and I lay them down at the foot of God as a sacrifice that is pleasing to Him. Lord, let our minds be transformed by the Word of God and let our minds be renewed by the Spirit of God that, Lord, our lives would be acceptable to you today. Lord, thank you again for your grace and for the gospel. pray these things in your name.